Akili companies, they are all about the Keelian culture and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Keeley Companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand driven by the same mission and core values. Keeley Companies is a family-owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love. Just with a fresh, streamlined look, and new additions to the family. Who knows? Maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time. And when you do, go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire, He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. Before we get started with today's guest, I do have a quick assignment for you. You ready for it? I want you to try to take inventory of every commitment you've got going on right now in your life. I know it's a lot, but think about it. Think of the relationship commitments, the jobs, the responsibilities, the kids, the parents, the carpools, the working out, the list goes on and on and on and on. Come on, think of all those commitments that we make through omission and commission. These are the things we do. Now, of all of those commitments... What are you actually doing right now with great, open, awesome generosity? And what are you doing out of sheer obligation and responsibility? You've got to. You just got to do these things. Well, today's guest is a licensed psychotherapist, a global relationship and empowerment expert, and the author of the book, Boundary Boss. With actionable strategies, Terry Cole, that's our guest, empowers others to consciously take control of every aspect of their emotional, their spiritual, their physical, personal, and professional lives. Today's conversation reminds each of us that we hold the ability to create more satisfaction, deeper relationships, and a more joy-filled life. If you or someone you know is exhausted from over-giving, overdoing, and even over-feeling, well, guess what? This episode is for you. My friends, without further ado, open up your favorite Live Inspired journal. Pull close that cup of tea or water or coffee. Get ready to rock and roll as we talk right now with my friend, soon to be yours, her name, Terry Cole. Terry, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Why, thanks, John O'Leary, for having me. Well, I had the honor a moment ago of giving you this long, flattering introduction, which you uh, probably don't always get when you're in a grocery store or uh, walking into a movie theater. So my question is, if you were to meet someone for the first time and they ask you what you did, how would you respond? I would say I'm a licensed psychotherapist and my mission or my job is to help as many people around the world have less suffering and more joy. So it's like actual skills though, right? Teaching people real strategies based in psychology, based in 
east-west because I also use some Eastern mindfulness practices, meditation, uh, breath work. But really what I, what I want to do is just to help people live more empowered lives because we're so incredibly blessed to be on planet Earth, even with all the bad stuff, right? Like we're still here. So that's that's my mission. That's what I do. You live out that mission beautifully in part by reminding people that our past informs our present and that will shape our future. So I want to talk a little bit about your past. And rather than starting with you, I want to go one one up from there, actually, and talk about Jan. Would you talk mm -hmm. about Jan Cole? I will. <laughs> uh, I had a great mom who was a human. <laughs> I still have a great mom. But I learned something really profound from my mother and that all, everything I learned from her, I think, informed what I ended up doing with my life. But my mother was someone who I always felt incredibly loved and understood. So my mother went out of her way. I was her fourth child. And back then you weren't supposed to have four cesarean sections. So they wanted her to terminate the pregnancy when she, it was, I was an unplanned pregnancy. She already had three daughters in a short period of time. I would have been the fourth within six years. And she was like, no, when they wanted her to terminate. And then I was the only one that she breastfed. And I was the first one to go to college and the first one to go to grad school, the only one to go to grad school, first one to go to Europe. Like there was all of these things in, in my life that I felt like the way my mother regarded me. Mm. Um, influenced my my belief that I could I could set my mind to something and do it. Like she was very interested in how I felt and what I thought. And I don't think we were spoiled. My parents were very like middle class from upstate New York, poor actually. I mean, I was raised middle class, but my folks were both very poor. It wasn't like being spoiled. It was like being very well loved as a little kid. And so I grew up really believing that what I think matters and how I feel matters, not more than you, not more than other people, but that it certainly matters. And that really impacted how I then built my life. And there's so much in the book that I write about all these sort of Jan Coleisms, where there were these moments, these pivotal moments in my life. And she doesn't even remember half of them, but she would, she was always sort of teaching me in a way, the mistakes that she made that she didn't want us to make. So make sure that you marry for love, get an education and make your own money so that love can be a choice and not a need like it was for her. That is my mom. And you know, she graduated high school, had to work for two years in a factory to save money because her parent, you know, she was broke to go to college and then got pregnant over Thanksgiving break and had to drop out of school and get married, like in the back office of the Methodist church in like Glens Falls, New York. So she really wanted more for us and did a really good job at empowering us to believe that we could do more. Mm. What, a, what an awesome testimony and celebration of your mom. You talked a lot about what you learned from your mom. What did you mm -hmm. learn from your dad? My father was emotionally pretty unavailable, but he was a very hard worker, incredibly decent human being, would never cheat anyone, would never cheat the government, would like a very uh, stand-up kind of guy. He paid for college. He bought me a used car. He fixed my teeth. He, you know, he would be like, you save money towards your retirement account and I'll match the money. Like one of those dads where he didn't really know how to talk to us. But what I learned from him was how to work hard, how to be prepared. If he had a meeting somewhere, he would go, he would drive all the way to that place the day before 
to make sure he didn't get lost, that he knew where he was going. And he became, he actually retired very young. He was in his early fifties and was really successful, stayed at the same company for like 35 years, never missed a day of work, even though, I mean, he was a high functioning alcoholic. So there was that, but he managed to be very successful within that. And then I learned a lot of things that I didn't want for my dad. I learned that I too was a high functioning alcoholic. And I learned that I didn't want to live my life that way because it isn't free. Just because you can still do the things sort of, you know, you're not getting the DUI, you're not getting fired. Like people think that alcoholism means like you're just a friggin' disaster, you know, like it's so obvious to everyone. It's not true. Coming from a family of high functioning addicts, you can do it for a long time. Like literally you could do it forever, but it isn't free because there's an emotional cost of not being present in your life. You know, I mean, I knew I I stopped drinking when I was 21. I was still in college. It was my last three months of college. I was like, well, if I could stop drinking now, I guess I can stop drinking forever because this would be the time when I would drink the most because I could see, I had a therapist who also was quite confronting about my behavior, but I could, it's almost like I could look at this, like there was a line in the sand and it was like my life with alcohol was on one side And it was just like a mess of stuff, miscommunications, fighting about nothing, best laid plans, not coming to fruition like that. And then I looked on the other side and it was like, it was just like a canvas, like a blank slate. And in that moment in my young life, I was like, holy crap, like I could actually just decide what my life is going to be, who I'm going to be. It actually doesn't really matter what came before because I have free will. And I'm here right now. And that, then I really got into self-help. And that moment of stopping drinking was this moment of clarity. But then, of course, I had to deal with the coping mechanisms. I didn't grow when I was in my teen years because I was just coping with life by drinking. And that took a little bit of time. But I, I got into therapy very young. So luckily, I had a great therapist who helped me sort of grow that um, those emotional coping skills that you don't have when you replace actual coping with numbing, then you don't like grow the skill, right? Then, then the numbing becomes the thing you do when life is hard or when you're upset or when you don't want to feel what you're feeling. So once I got into therapy, I was like, oh, I'm doing this for the rest of my life, which I have been. That was, I was, I'm 58 right now. And that was when I was 19. <laughs> so it's a lot of years. You started drinking, you shared at age 14, doing shots with your sisters. That is relatively early to begin doing shots with family or friends. You did that then for the next seven or eight years. And then you shared right there, like it it was almost like you were looking at an Excel sheet and there was one path taking you to the left and another path taking you to the right. And it was free will. And you made this decision so rarely though in life, is it that easy to see so clearly which way one path goes and which way the other path goes. What do you think it was about either your past or how you saw your future that allowed you to make that decision at a wildly impressionable point in your life? You know, honestly, I was very impacted by the therapist that I had at the time, Bev. And I was already in therapy with her for over a year, right? Because I started when I was 19. And she was very clear that what I was describing to her, my own behavior was alcoholic behavior. And then she went on to clearly state that if I didn't like get it together and go to a 12 step program, she was going to terminate working with me. And I was like, holy crap. First of all, I didn't even know that you were allowed to what your therapist can just break up with you. Okay. Well, there we go. 
but it, it really startled me into awakeness. I was like, I, I respect her. And she thinks this is so serious that she would terminate working with me over it. My God, like there must be something to it. And she said, you have to go to at least one AA meeting. You have to go to a 12-step program and learn about the medical model of addiction and la, la, la. Because I was totally in denial because everyone in my life, I had, I had so many high-functioning alcoholics all around me. I was like, hi, this is normal. This is what people do, you know? And I remember going to this meeting in a basement of a church. I mean, not to be stereotypical, but it was in Syosset, Long Island. And I sat, I like positioned myself purposefully by the door because I was like, I don't know, this might be a cult. Who knows what this is? Like, let's just make sure we can always get away. And, you know, keep in mind, you guys, it was the 80s. We were all still smoking. So I wanted to smoke my Parliament 100s considerately by the door. So I'm sitting by the door and this woman comes over and she says to me, oh, you're new. You're like, oh, God, like I'm being noticed. Oh, no. And she's like, oh, welcome. And then she said, what brings you here? And I said, honestly, my therapist told me if I didn't come to a 12-step meeting, she thinks I'm an alcoholic, that she would terminate working with me. Now, I don't know the etiquette in the in the rooms, as we call them now. I don't know. what. So I just am being polite, I think. And I say, well, what, what brings you here? And she said, oh, um, I killed a six-year-old boy in a drunk driving accident. And I was like, oh, my God. I couldn't even possibly describe to you, John, the feeling, the moment. I held it together. I was like, oh, my God, that's terrible. I'm sorry you had that experience. And she was like, oh, trust me, nobody is sorrier than I am. I have to live with it every day knowing that I broke a mother's heart. Like, how do you live with that? I'm thinking, I have no idea. So I make it through the, the end of the meeting and I go into my car and I'm bawling my, like just hysterically crying. And I was thinking about how gratitude, right? The tears were gratitude because way too many times I had driven drunk. There is no doubt that I did. It was the eighties. People were not talking about it. It's no excuse. And how many times could that have been me there, but for the grace of God. And I was sitting there and Whitney Houston's the greatest love of all comes on not to be really trite or corny, but I swear to God, I couldn't even drive. I was bawling my face off so hard. And I, when I could finally drive again, and of course I was relating this to what is the greatest love of all is to take care of myself is to make sure I am never that woman. And I thanked her so much in my heart. I was like, she's an angel. Mm. What a generous angel that she told me that story. Like, thank you. Her pain was so much inspiration for me to be like, this is serious. Like you, this is serious. And I just remember, you know, making a sort of a deal with the powers that be God, the universe, whatever it is you believe that I got it. Like, I was like, I understand it does not have to be me. I'm done with drinking. And that was that. And that was in 1987, I think. Three and a half decades ago, you make this decision with the help of Bev. She's either, you're either making a change or she is. So you, you make this change. And yet right. some brokenness that brought you onto that couch in the first place remains. Outside of alcohol, what were some other things that you were wrestling with as a young woman? I was always that person, that forward motion activity. I was always like a, I really was always an optimistic kid. I had a real lust for life, even at a young age, but something was going on at my school. We were having like, we were getting dumped with snow. School kept getting canceled. And I had all this time on my hands suddenly. 
because I was a cheerleader and I was taking all these classes and doing all these things. But then the school was literally basically shut down for like two weeks. And I was, for the first time in my life, I felt depressed. I felt sort of this sense of like, what is the point? And there was many things going on in my family system. All of my sisters had addiction issues. My parents had gotten divorced when I was 13. Like the, the, my mother was moving back upstate to her home. So selling my childhood home, there were all of these things going on. So it was like all of these um, security issues that were like rocking the foundation of like what I knew to be my reality. I, I was always open to like, I was always such a talker and I was always, I was self-reflective. I was interested in growing, learning, changing, whatever it would be, other countries, cultures, people, families, whatever it was. And so I asked to get a counselor from the center. Like there was a place on the school campus where you could go. And I was first matched with someone, and you won't believe this, but like after three sessions, she literally spontaneously died. I swear to God. So I was like, wow. Now, some people would say, well, maybe therapy is not for me. And I was like, oh, I feel bad for that woman's family. And she was lovely. But then the next person they gave me was Bev. And keep in mind, Bev was in training. Mm. I was like an internship for her, basically. And she was so good. She had been a part of the New York City Ballet back in the day and eventually became a therapist. Like, I just feel like it was just meant to be. So anyway, that is what inspired me. I also always had like weight issues, up and down weight things. I would, in the summer, I would um, lose weight, then I'd get back to school. And part of that was because I drank so much. So a lot of that changed, shifted. When I stopped drinking, I just couldn't even believe what happened to my body? Because I'd been drinking a lot for a long time where I just, just, weight was just pouring off. I was like, oh wait, look, there's a cheekbone. Unbelievable. Who even knew? Because alcohol is so bloating. Those were the other things. And worrying about my sisters. I, I was the youngest, but not really. I was more like the designated oldest child where it's a little bit out of order because I was the one doing all of these things. And you would think I was the youngest. They'd be like, jealous or mad or mean. And I swear, John, I swear, I think I might've been the most loved kid by not just my mother, but my sisters all wanted me with them. Like they would take me with them. Most, most older sisters are like, get lost, you know? And they, their friends were like, we want Terry to come. They were like, okay. So I felt very, um, again, wanted and loved in, even with the problems that happened with my sisters all acting out, right? I mean, listen, what are we acting out? Well, we're acting out the veiled feelings of the group, right? The family system, when there is conflict that cannot be talked about, because as human beings, what are our choices? We either talk it out or we act it out. So we were all sort of doing our part to act out this, the frustration of the family system. There were also two inflection points that began to change the trajectory of your life. Uh, you're, you're climbing high, you are rocking and rolling, you're teaching, you uh, have the masters, you're successful. You're in your early thirties. Mm -hmm. And then two things happen sequentially that begin to change your life yet yeah, negatively in some regards, but ultimately in, in a very positive way, w would you talk about losing your dad and then eventually a diagnosis that you received? Interestingly, I met my husband and he was supposed to meet my father. My father then got called back away. He had to go back to Florida and we're like, okay, we'll do it at Christmas. No problem. And then my father died that November. So it was like, he never got to meet my amazing husband, which is such a bummer. 
because he would have loved him so much because he's so wonderful. With my dad, luckily, I would go see him once a year. And I was, the, the story in the book that I share is that I would go in to see my therapist, Bev, and I say, you know, graduation, grad school graduation is in May. I'm not inviting my father. And she's like, why not? And I was like, because he won't come. He hates Manhattan. He hates New York. When he retired, he like said he was never going to New York City again because he, for many years, he worked in the city. He just couldn't deal. He hated the cold weather, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, okay, but do you want to invite him? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, hi, he's my father. It's like, this is an important, like a momentous experience in my life. It's, it marks the end of a lot of hard work and probably the beginning of more hard work or whatever. And she said, well, then I'm going to give you an assignment. And I was like, oh God, what? And she was like, you got to ask your dad. You're going down to Florida this weekend. Ask your dad, tell him that you got him a ticket and invite him to your graduation. And I was like, uh, I'm inviting him, even though I know he's going to say no. She's like, Terry, your healing comes from the asking having the courage to negotiate for your needs, for your desires, for your wants, letting your preference be known. You can accept it if he, he's not going to do it, but your healing, your actual healing is in having that conversation and not being so afraid of being rejected. If he can't do it, he can't do it, but, and you'll be okay either way. So I kept trying to be like, okay, the healing's in the asking, the healing's in the asking. Okay. Healing's in the asking. Still being like, I think this is kind of stupid. I'm going to ask him. He's definitely going to say no. But then I realized I was really afraid to ask him. So anyway, I go through the whole weekend. Of course, I don't do it. I think every time I'm about to do it, I'm like, nah. So then I'm packing to leave. He's driving me to the airport. I'm like, crap. Like I have to do it. I cannot go back to New York and tell Bev I didn't do it. I'll be like so ashamed. So I'm like, hey dad. He's like, yeah, Terry. With his hands on the wheel. I was like, uh, graduation from grad school is in May. I got your ticket if you want to come. And he was like, huh, silence. <laughs> and then he goes, I really can't Terry. I, I really can't. And I was like, okay, I said, no problem. And then he goes, here comes the guilt. And I was like, what? Thinking I haven't guilted you a second in my life, buddy. And I certainly could have, and I haven't. So I go, and then suddenly this whole conversation opened up and I was like, dad, it's absolutely not about guilt. Mom will be there. Kathy will have had a baby five days before my graduation and she will be there with the baby. Like there'll be enough representation from the family. But here's the thing, dad, you're my only father. No one can replace you. So I can understand it's too much. I'm not mad that you can't do it. I love you. And you are important to me. Staying connected to you is important to me. And he was like, uh, okay. <laughs> Cause he literally had like the emotional IQ of a sneaker. He was like, oh God. But it felt so good to tell the truth. Mm. Of course I loved him. Of course, I respected him because he was a very respectable person, a very decent human being. And he had been very supportive of me in the way that he was capable of being supportive. He literally just could not be the warm and fuzzy daddy's little girl daddy that I wished he was okay. when I could accept the way that he could love me, that he was, he was capable of loving me. I could finally feel loved rather than wanting it to come in a very specific package. So that was a very pivotal moment in my life with him. And it happened to be the very last time that I saw him mm. because within three months, he died of a massive coronary. When you got the call that your father passed away with all of the letdowns and all the times there was an empty seat 
and all the times where you were doing something that mattered to you. And he walked in and said, uh, you know, sports zone or whatever he would say when he walked into the room, which was mm-hmm. your cue to leave the room. Mm-hmm. How did you feel when you got the call that your, your, your father had passed? So sad, just so sad. Like there was, I felt like in some ways, even though I was in my thirties, it was like, my life was just beginning. Yeah. And I knew it's interesting how, how we end up, if you do a decent amount of therapy, you can end up in life marrying the best of your parents, right? As opposed to marrying the worst of your parents. And I felt like I was always a gal who didn't want to get married. I was like, you know what? It doesn't look that great. I could do great on my own. Like, And if I'm going to get married, it's going to be someone who is bringing something to this party that I cannot bring for myself. Someone who will teach me something. Someone who makes me better helps me expand, which is all the things that my husband does. But I felt like maybe the biggest sadness was that I had just found my person. And I knew, I, I knew Vic and I were going to get married. We weren't engaged yet, but I, I knew we were going to. And um, I was so sad mm-hmm. that, I, that that was the end of our conversations. Before my father died and after the nobody can replace you conversation for that period. And maybe it was within six months that he passed away. We started talking on the phone. I started getting notes from him, like happy spring. What? I was like, who the hell is this? Like just him letting me know he was thinking about me in a way that he never did or felt comfortable to do before. And he still was a man of very few words. But so I also was like, Oh, here's this burgeoning, like, deeper relationship with him that I won't get to take any any further because he was very young. He was in his early sixties. You know, my husband is 68 right now. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like 61 is young to pass. You you said two things there that I think are hugely meaningful. Tell the truth. Just tell the truth. Like there's freedom, there's liberation in truth. The second thing you said, and you, you were talking about your dad is this idea of the healing is in the asking. It doesn't really matter what he responded with. The healing was already done when you asked the question of him, yep. which which then not only began healing that relationship, but I think it would ultimately pour a firmer foundation for the next struggle that is coming your way. So you, you lose your dad, Terry, and then you get a diagnosis soon after. Would you talk about that and how you weathered that storm? After my father passed, my sisters and I went down to Florida with his longtime partner, Linda. We were you know, cleaning out the house. And I felt this big lump in my throat and I called my mother, even though she's not a doctor and does not even play one on TV, but she always thinks she is. So she's got all her books. So she gets out her medical books. She's like, oh, I think it's a goiter. (laughs) I don't think it's anything, but go to your doctor when you get back. So I go back and the doctor's like, not a goiter, but it is something. We don't know if it's something to be scared of, but the thing was, it was too big to stay in. They they knew it was kind of like the size of a plum. I get it taken out and they're like, Ah, I don't hear anything from anyone for days. So I leave, leave the hospital. Vic is taking care of me. My mother and my closest sister, Kathy, come down to Elizabeth, New Jersey. That's where I was living with Vic and the boys. And I realized it was so mind-blowing to me that I didn't actually need them to come because Vic was the most capable. I, I never had a man who was so capable. So actually I told him, I was like, hey, you guys can go home. Like Vic has it covered. Because he was a single dad, was widowed when his kids were little. So it was a whole thing that there was something I really learned about that process too, was that he, how capable he was. 10 days after I am going back in to get the sutures out and to get the, the tape off my neck, which is where the surgery was. 
And I sit down with this doctor and he literally says to my face, as we're sitting down, it's been 10 days. I haven't even looked at the pathology yet. I was like, uh, okay, well, you might want to look at, I guess we'll both be surprised. It just, how about open it up and look at it now? But I just couldn't, I was like, why even tell me that? Just look at it one second before I walk in. Anyway, opens it up and he's like, huh, well, it's malignant. And I was such a cancer virgin. I literally said, is that the good one? He was like, well, not exactly. That was surprising, shocking. Now going through treatment, radiation. And then I ended up having to have the same exact surgery done again because of what that surgeon himself chose to do while he was inside. There was all, all of these things that happened that were super stressful. Keeping in mind, here I am forging this relationship with these kids. So Vic and I fell madly in love. He had three acting out kind of angry teenage boys, but I knew they loved me and they did and they still do. And then here I am. Finally, they're going to have the bonus mom's going to come in. I was so psyched. I'm like, this is, this is the way my family is going to come together. Amazing. And they lost their mother to cancer. And when mm -hmm. they finally believed I was going to stay, I get diagnosed with cancer. But what ended up happening is that as a family, we got through it. And I really thought like, oh, I know why this is happening. Someone can get sick and they can get better. And we can talk about it as a family and we can get into therapy about it and therapy about other things. And it was like this opportunity to just manage life when it's messy and painful. But I was like, I'm not going anywhere. And the kids were so hardened, you know, cause they, they'd had a lot of loss in their young life already. So those two things back to back, again, shifted the trajectory of my life, especially the cancer, because it made me really get that like what you knew all of your life because of your young life experience, or at least from the age of six, that really we are not guaranteed any right. moment of this experience. And any moment you get is a bonus, is a gift, is an honor and a privilege and live it that way. One of my favorite authors is a fellow named Henry Nowen. He wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. And I believe in that book, mm -hmm. there's this quote that says, the scars exist because the wounds have healed. You could spend a couple hours unpacking that one. The scars exist because the wounds have healed. I'm curious how losing your father and growing up in the manner in which you did, and then going through this cancer bout with mm -hmm. Dick at your side and the boys at your side now, how that influenced the way you serve as a counselor. You know, you've been doing this work now for more than two decades. Mm -hmm. How has being a wounded healer you got wounded first, and then you started healing others. Mm -hmm. How did the wounds influence the way you showed up and listened and served and met them where they were? My own resiliency, my own ability to evolve and grow and learn and gain wisdom from those painful experiences made me resonate, just made my, my, just my existence and my message resonate with so many other people who are very similar. Right. Right. So how it impacts my the way that I served is that I've been there. I always feel like I'm a I'm a fellow journeyer, right? I'm a fellow traveler. I'm a seeker. Right. My own evolution will never end, if God willing, right? This this is what we want. So I don't know. I'm certainly nobody's guru, but I do know what it's like <laughs> to have a lot of bad things happen. I do know what it's like to feel hopeless or to feel afraid or to have really profound loss mm. in life. But I also know what's on the other side of that if we keep going. So what I hope 
is that it's um, my life and my life experiences and the ones that I share is that I hope that they do what your story does, which is provide hope. Like it can be really bleak and you can still have joy in life. Like it can get better. It will get better. Just don't quit. So much of your work is about just don't quit. And an aspect of that is setting up healthy boundaries. Talk about the need for boundaries. So some of our listeners may not even be familiar, like, what, what, why? You know, life is just life and you live it, you do the best you can. So what, why do we have a need for boundaries in our life? Well, you can live it way better when you have healthy boundaries. So I want you to think about anyone listening who's like, what's a boundary? I want yeah. you to think about your boundaries as your own personal rules of engagement. This lets other people know what's okay with you and what's not okay with you. So we're always informing other people. Your boundaries, according to me, are made up of your preferences, your limits, and your deal breakers, like your non-negotiables in your relationship, work, life, whatever it may be. Now, it's not enough just to know them. Many of us know our preferences, our limits, and our deal breakers, but we must be able to readily communicate them when and if we so choose. And I think that that becomes a stick, like a stumbling block for many people because no one ever taught us how to do this. And that a lot of times we were taught that if we did have boundaries, that we were selfish, rude, dramatic. I mean, I could keep going. I won't, well, but. We're not in our heads as you're going forward. So, so in not having these boundaries, what ultimately ends up happening through omission or commission is we say yes to everything and everybody. And, and I think in, in society today, we think that saying yes always is wise. And yet an unintentional yes to everything in life means you say no to a whole lot of things that ought to matter a whole lot more. In perfectly said, and I fully agree. The thing with having the disease to please, which is what you are kind of describing, saying yes, when we might really rather say no, is that it's not just that you become burnt out, overburdened, bitter, you do. It's a setup for the martyr syndrome for a fact. But the real tragedy in that is that we are giving corrupted information about us to the people in our life. When we say yes, when we'd really rather say no, when we don't speak up about a preference because we're trying to be nice in quotes, None of those things are actually being nice. Saying yes when you want to say no, which sets you up to become resentful and the other person up to not know you, that's not nice. That's just, you're doing that because you want to avoid conflict. You're doing that because you're so attached to being perceived as being nice that you don't realize how important how you actually feel is. And that is who you are, how you actually feel. How can anyone, right? All of us, ultimately, we want to be deeply loved, right? Seen, known accurately. Well, how can we be if we're saying yes when we want to say no to the people who we're closest to? So, I mean, making it super real, how do you decide when it's an act of service or when it's you going against your better decisions and better angels because you feel guilted into it? So, for instance... Mm -hmm. Maybe Vic wants coffee in the morning and you had a late night working last night and uh, you feel guilted into waking up early, getting the coffee going. How do we know that that's 
saying yes when you really should say no versus not just it's just you loving your husband that's doing the right thing if i normally do the coffee thing and i had a late night it would serve me to expect that he's a grown man and can make his own freaking coffee and can make coffee for me so i i feel like in that moment it you have we have to be discerning if i had a late night and i don't want to get up early i'll say hey I have a simple request that you're on coffee duty tomorrow because I'm beat and I'm, I need more than six hours sleep. And he would lovingly say, of course, and no problem. And he would not expect me to get up and make coffee for him to begin with. But I understand what, what, what your point is. A lot of times, especially in long-term relationships with Vic and I, because we've been together 25 years, we can talk about what's important. Like if let's say, he wants me to do something and maybe I really don't want to do it. Go to go hear classical music. Let's just say, if I think it's important to him, I will do it. Like yeah. if he says I would love it, or, or if there's a business thing he has is a black side thing, he'll always tell me the truth. You know, listen, do I always want to go? No. But if he says it's going to be fun, a bunch of people I really like are going to be there. I'd love, I really want you to come immediately. I'm like, I can't wait. Got to pick up my dress. So you have to be able to talk about it. I think the assumption, and this is where codependency, high-functioning codependency all comes into, where we make these assumptions, which so much of the time are just projections about how we would feel in this situation, ask, do not assume, Right. don't make assumptions, have it so that you can have an open enough dialogue that if your partner says, I really feel like having pizza tonight. Do you want pizza that you're able to say, you know, babe, I really don't. Please, let's find something in the middle. I really don't. I'm just not feeling it. It's too hot. That that you can have those conversations because when we make these what we consider to be like um, sacrifices, right? All of this self-sacrifice, quote unquote, for others. So much of the time, it's not for them. Mm. It's for us to avoid conflict. And we're really robbing them of knowing us, of really knowing us. And you know what? You and I, all of us, are worth being accurately and succinctly known. You use a term and you just dropped it and then moved on, but I'm going to come back to it. High-functioning codependent. Tell us what the heck that is uh, and why it is so doggone frequent. <laughs> it sure is. Well, let's talk about codependency first and, and why I came up with this moniker of high-functioning codependency. Codependency is when you're overly involved in the feeling states, the outcomes, the decisions, the relationships, the circumstances of the people in your life, to the detriment of your internal peace, financial, physical, spiritual, emotional well-being. Make sense? So it isn't just, listen, we're all lovers, right? Of course, we want the people in our life to be happy. But if their problems become our problems... If we are so invested in their happiness that when they're unhappy, we literally cannot be happy. That is codependency. That is too much connection there. So in my therapy practice for years, if I would mention it to one of my, my therapy clients, which were mostly incredibly capable women, the way that very attracted to women who are of the same ilk as I am. And I would say, oh, hey, what I noticed, this is a, a codependent um, behavior that we're talking about, they would immediately get defensive and be like, yeah, no way, lady. I'm not dependent on squat. Everyone's dependent on me. I'm making all the money. I'm doing all the things. I'm the one who everyone comes to. I'm the go-to person. Trust me. 
I'm not dependent on anyone. And I was like, oh my God, my clients don't know what codependency is. That this is what this means. It they they're thinking codependent no more, Melody Beatty have to be involved with an addict, all about enabling. And I'm like, no. And what I'm talking about, because it was my own flavor of codependency, of course. I was like, this is new. What I'm talking about actually is new, but it is a phenomenon. Talk about an epidemic. So I added high functioning because here's the thing. It's hitting people who are so capable Mm. that nobody would even question their ability to do it. They're getting it all done, but they're getting it all done at the expense of themselves. And yet other people don't know. So it's a little bit like, I like to say, you know, think about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, right? Ginger Rogers was doing everything Fred Astaire was doing, except she was doing it backwards and in heels. That's like a high functioning codependent. <laughs> makes I sense? I you are going with that. And now I'm finally tracking. So yes, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> so that's, this is high functioning codependency is exhausting. There's a cost for it. We are overly focused on the needs, desires, and troubles of others. And again, we're still getting something done. I mean, so many of my clients were like CFOs, CEOs, pop star, like literally people who others look at and go, oh my God, they have it all together. And they don't. So I am actually writing a book on high functioning codependency, people pleasing, and like how to stop these behaviors that really get in the way of us creating the lives that we want and deserve. Well, there's a quote in your current book that I hope ends up in the next book as well. I'm going to read it to you, although you wrote it for me, and then I'd like you to tell us what it means. So here it is. Perfectionism is a sanctioned drug in our hyper-ambitious, money-centric society. Talk about that. Perfectionism is a sanctioned drug. It's just like workaholism, where people, we think it's a badge of honor to never think it's enough to, to never be satisfied with what we're doing, to work ourselves to death. I'm always a recovering workaholic personally. And it is sanctioned in, especially in the American culture, that it's just uh, many other cultures around the world too, that Japanese culture, Chinese culture, where you just literally work yourself to death. And what are we avoiding, right? There, there's a cost for being a perfectionist and not accepting life on life's terms. Because if you're a perfectionist, you are really wanting to reject the messiness of actual life. It's messy. <laughs> Love is messy. Good relationships are messy. Bad relationships are messy. Raising kids is messy. Having a career is messy. Menopause is messy. Death is messy. All of it is messy. So there's no way to have that kind of control. And yet I see it over and over again, people working triple time to have that control. There is such a lack of acceptance, such a lack of flow, right? Such a lack of, you know, it's like, can we let it be easy? Because I can work hard and I can let it be easy. Getting that balance right is extraordinarily difficult and the call So help us do exactly that for those of us who are workaholics or we are Mm. strivers or we are moving toward perfection. And we realize if we don't say yes to the school auction, who will? If we don't coach the team, who will? If we don't do the grocery shop and make the beds, who does it? So for those of us who are still trying to say yes to everything, because if we don't, who will? How do we begin taking back and get liberated in our own life to, uh, to experience flow and greater joy? 
Well, part of it is think right now. You know, John, if you were abducted by aliens right now, someone else would do the school auction. That this fear that it must be me. And trust me, this was my whole life in my 20s and early 30s. So I get it. It must be me, right? Must be me. It's not true. And what happens is think about how you feel. You cannot give from an empty bucket. And when you say yes to everything, oh, your bucket is empty. And you're checking a box. You're not even doing it from a place of love. You're doing it from a place of fear. If I don't, who will? I promise you it is not noble. It is just dysfunctional. So self-care has to be the top order of business where know yourself. What do you enjoy doing? What can you do with actual generosity? Not what are you doing out of sheer obligation? And listen, we all have families. We all live in a society. We will sometimes be doing things out of sheer obligation, but it can't be 90% of what we do. It can't be because I'm afraid that Betty won't like me if I don't do that. And if it is that, we really have to start looking in and really getting dialed into what do I like? What do I want to do? What do I enjoy? Because it matters. You are not on this earth to worry about what every other person thinks. Sometimes Betty's not going to like what you do. You know what? It's okay. We're all, everyone's going to live. We're all going to be fine. Right? We, we, we're so afraid of that rejection. But let's become discerning about who we're afraid of being rejected by. I used to not want anyone to dislike me, even people I didn't like. <laughs> Is that ridiculous? Strange behavior. <laughs> so start with self-care is what I say. So we're moving toward, unfortunately, the end of our time together. But that idea of self-care, we hear so much about it. A lot of the work we do is done with nurses or educators or business owners, folks trying to manage everything. And that's before they get home and have a whole life to lead there. And then they're told to take care of yourself too. Don't forget to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. Help us, Terry Cole, uh, understand a little bit more about what self-care is and how we can step into it today. Well, I look at it from the point of view of your time is very valuable. You literally looking at every single thing that you've been saying yes to. There are definitely things that you can take off your plate. And I want to invite every person listening to get super clear, do a total inventory. Who are you spending time with? Who, who, what relationship are you twisting yourself up in a pretzel for? Who are the people who you are, you are allowing to sit in your VIP section who really should be in general admission? Who really should be in general admission? People who feel entitled to your sunshine, your kindness, your generosity, your energy. And if they are not people who are feeding you, if there is not a mutuality, then you need to move those people where they actually go. Maybe it's a mezzanine, mezzanine, I don't know, but they definitely do not belong in the VIP section of your life. So we can start with, what are you doing out of sheer obligation that you can stop doing? And then give yourself permission to stop. And of course, John, obviously we're all in agreement. There's going to be some things that we do out of sheer obligation. Even if we love our kids, maybe you're the room mom and maybe you wish you kind of weren't. 
but we do that for, and we gain other things by doing some of those things, even if it does feel like an obligation, but it's still a choice. But think about the ones like your third cousin once removed, who's like, you're my best friend, but they are not your best friend. They take, take, take. Who are the takers in your life that you can have a better distance from? Start stepping back from those relationships. And what self-care actually looks like, that is a radical act of self-care right there. Not giving everyone so much access to your amazing, one-of-a-kind life. That is a radical act of self-care. When readers finish the book, Boundary Boss, what's one thing you hope they walk away with? The ability to tell the truth, to talk true, to realize that how they feel matters, is important, that they are important. And it's not about what the other person does, right? Remember, your healing is in the stepping up for yourself, right? With the story with my dad, your healing is in the asking or in the sharing of preference. If the other person freaks out, that's not your side of the street. So I want you to walk away with knowing that you have the ability to create more satisfaction, deeper relationships, more joy, more love in your life. And I promise you, I promise you, Healthier boundaries are the bridges to those things, not the blocks. Terry, we could spend 14 hours talking about the other other side of the street, because I think that's where the majority of us live. We're looking over the fence, looking over the roadway, uh, looking over the neighbors or the people who live across town, across the country, around the world, rather than starting by um, looking in the mirror and then moving forward from there. So I, I just so, am so encouraged by your challenge, by your encouragement around this today. And we wrap up every one of our Live Inspired podcasts with seven questions. They tether all of our guests together. And the very first one for you, my friend, is what has been the most influential book you have ever read? I think it's the Seven Spiritual Laws of Success by Deepak. That was, that's gotta be one of the most influential because I've read it at such an impressionable time in my life. What, what from that book? What was the primary takeaway from it? Be impeccable with your word, even though Don Miguel Ruiz also talks about that in the Four Agreements, the law of least um, effort. There, there's so much in that book that changed the way I looked at approaching business and life. And and there's such a power in not swimming upstream. Mm-hmm. Such a power in flipping over and floating when you realize you are swimming upstream. And that's what that book did for me. What is one positive characteristic or one positive trait that you possessed as a little girl? I think you grew up in in New Jersey that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today. I I think lack of any self-consciousness. I wish I could be as not, not that I consider myself madly self-conscious now, but I was like completely uninhibited as a child. If your home caught fire, and Vic and the boys and the animals and everybody else are out safely and you had an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one thing you would return with? My wedding rings. So I have my grandmother's wedding ring, my band and my, my diamond. I, would, I, I might run back for that. <laughs> if you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Oh God, so many people. Kind of want to go with Oprah, but not really. Like Tik Nok Hum, you know, this this Tibetan monk is unbelievable. I want to go with Pima Children. I want to go with so many people. I want to go with Barbara Streisand, who I love, love, love. All right, so I gave you seven, but 
whatever. <laughs> Barack Obama. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> it's going to be a crowded bench. Uh, I look forward <laughs> to the music that that bench creates. What's the best advice that one of them or anyone else from your past has ever provided you? So the best advice you've ever received is? If you need things to be done a particular way, and you're very critical of others and the way that they do it, then you will be doing it all for yourself, by yourself. Wow. So stop being so judgmental and just accept the help the way that it comes. Going Jan back, Nicole. <laughs> going back in time a few years, what advice would you give yourself at age 20? It's all going to work out. Like, just don't stress so much. It's all going to be fine. Also, don't date that idiot musician. Maybe, maybe <laughs> there, there would be that little advice in there too. <laughs> Your father was right about that one. So, <laughs> It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would mm. you like your one sentence to read? She was kind. <laughs> Terry Cole, you've lived quite a life. You've been through some profound lows and some remarkable highs. We thank you for joining us on the Live Inspired podcast. And we thank you for choosing to be kind, not only in your words, but in your actions. Thank you so much for having me. I have a gift for all of your listeners about boundaries and codependency, because I think this is a sticky spot for most people. So they can get it at boundaryboss.me forward slash live inspired. Awesome. Love it. We will direct them there. And we thank you for your work, my friend. Thanks for having me, John. At the top of the show, I asked you to take inventory of every commitment that you're making in your life and ask yourself that simple question, what am I doing with actual generosity and what am I doing right now out of sheer obligation? Mm. Now, of those commitments you're making out of sheer obligation, we all have them. Every one of us has them. No need to feel guilty about it. No need to feel bad about it. But I want you to leave today's conversation giving yourself a little bit of grace. Give yourself some permission to stop serving those that aren't deserving. After all, as Terry mentioned, the most radical form of self-care is not giving everyone so much access to your amazing, one-of-a-kind, miraculous gift of a life. So I'm asking you to be selfish today. Say no to one thing so you can say yes to the best of your life. If you enjoyed today's episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you and you're looking for additional healthy tips on establishing healthy boundaries, you're going to love the conversation that I had with Megan Hyatt Miller. Megan and her father, New York Times bestselling author, leadership expert Michael Hyatt, they coach others through the principles that help them rethink work and productivity to discover the double win. A perspective that sees work and life in partnership, not in opposition, if you want to learn more about Michael Hyatt or his daughter, Megan Hyatt Miller, or the work that they are doing, check it out by visiting me right now at www.johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. You can just check out the Megan Hyatt Miller conversation there or all of our almost 500 episodes right there at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. My friends, I want to thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. I want to thank you for believing, like I do, that the foundation is firm. The headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Make sure we take time for it. Live Inspired. 
One thing I love most about my friends at Keeley Companies is their spirit and their passion for giving back to their communities across the nation. Keeley Companies was recently named a top corporate philanthropist by the St. Louis Business Journal. And I could not think of a more deserving organization to receive that honor. In 2021 alone, the Keeley Cares Foundation served countless people in need, donated more than $2 million, and served for more than 20,000 hours. On top of that, they added an astounding 13 new charities to their ever-growing wall of compassion. Here at the Live Inspired Podcast, we are proud to partner with Keeley Cares throughout the year, improving our communities with time, with talent, and with treasure. You can learn more about their unbelievable impact by visiting them online at keeleycompanies.com. 